Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 25th, 2019, the Center hosted a conference titled The Administration of Immigration, where experts discussed various aspects of immigration law and policy. The discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and you can also find video of the discussions there. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's keynote remarks delivered by James McHenry, who directs the Justice Department's Executive Office of Immigration Review. In this presentation, Mr. McHenry describes the work of the Office of Immigration Review and places it into the context of the broader discussions we had on immigration law and policy. I hope you enjoy these remarks. Good afternoon. First, I'd like to thank the uh, uh, Gray Center. I'm here at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason uh, for the invitation to speak here today. Uh, I also want to give a special acknowledgement to uh, Jesse Panuccio, who's out in the audience. He was the moderator of the previous panel. Uh, I had the good fortune, uh, the pleasure really, to work for Jesse at the department uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and I'm very happy to learn that he, uh, he's brought his keen analytical and legal mind here to the, uh, the Gray Center as the inaugural public service fellow. So congratulations, Jesse. Uh, when thinking about the topic of today's conference, uh, that is the administration of immigration, uh, my first thought is that immigration offers a little something for everyone, uh, which makes it daunting to think of its administration in any sort of monolithic or, or uniform terms, because it means so many different things to different people. Uh, if you're with a group of attorneys, as, as many of you here in the audience are, and you mention immigration, uh, you might get a response that draws from criminal law, criminal procedure, administrative law, civil procedure, civil rights, or even constitutional law, uh, or even environmental laws, as I learned earlier today. Um, so the, even at the highest levels of litigation, so even if we funnel it down to just litigation, um, there's no singular conception of immigration administration. Uh, as many of you know um, already this term, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear several immigration-related cases uh, that sort of run the scope or run the gamut of different issues. They raise issues of preemption, uh, of administrative law principles, of civil liability, the scope of judicial review, uh, and there are even two constitutional challenges to, uh, to particular provisions in immigration law, uh, one involving expedited removal uh, and the other related to a criminal alien harboring statute. Uh, even if you funnel it down further to, uh, to just look at administrative law, you're going to get different perspectives from the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of State, the Department of Justice, my agency, the Department of Labor, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, and so on, uh, each of which operates according to its own statutory, regulatory, uh, and case law principles. Uh, in short, the scope of what immigration touches is expansive, uh, and this conference is quite right to note that, quote, perhaps no area of American law is as complexly administered as our nation's immigration system. So given this scope, this, this breadth and this depth, uh, it's perhaps not surprising that no uniform theory of administering or managing immigration has emerged, uh, and I'm not going to attempt to offer one today. Uh, instead, I want to focus on one particular piece of the larger immigration picture, uh, that is the immigration courts, uh, and not only because it involves my agency and is near and dear to my heart. Uh, rather, I believe uh, it, it conveys or it's both an important successful case study that I want to talk about uh, and one that may yield useful insights for administering immigration at other agencies, 
uh, and also gives an illustrative tale regarding the limits of being able to administer and manage such a complex subject that happens to cut across many agencies uh, and many subdisciplines of law as well. Uh, some of you may know the immigration courts are administrative courts. They're located in the Department of Justice, and they're tasked primarily with determining both the removability of aliens and the eligibility of those aliens for certain forms of relief or protection from removal. They're presided over by immigration judges in trial-like settings. The Department of Homeland Security represents the enforcement interests of the government during these proceedings in seeking the alien's removal. Uh, although, as in most civil proceedings, uh, aliens are not entitled to representation at government expense, uh, two-thirds of all aliens and 80% of aliens seeking asylum do have representation in these proceedings, making the immigration courtrooms the setting for, for a typical adversarial proceeding. Uh, by way of a little bit of history and background, uh, the courts, or the forerunner, the progenitor of the courts, dates back to 1891, the Immigration Act of 1891, uh, which created the first federal administrative system for adjudicating the admissibility or deportability of aliens in the United States. It was initially housed in the Treasury Department before it moved to the Department of Commerce and Labor in 1903, and then the, to the Department of Labor when the departments were separated in 1913. It then came to the Department of Justice in 1940, where it has remained ever since and evolved into our modern immigration court system, uh, which involves not only the trial courts, but also an administrative appellate body known as the Board of Immigration Appeals. Responsibility for the civil enforcement of the immigration laws related to admissibility and deportability has followed a similar path, except that those responsibilities were moved to the Department of Homeland Security when it was established in 2003. Although the Department of Homeland Security, uh, its authority to issue removal orders, excuse me, without utilizing an immigration court has expanded over the years, uh, the immigration courts themselves remain an important part of the overall system for ensuring that certain categories of aliens do receive notice and an opportunity to be heard regarding whether they should be removed from the United States. Now, an administrative court system within the executive branch is neither novel nor unique. Uh, indeed, most federal administrative agencies have some type of court systems within their purviews. Uh, there are over 10,000 administrative adjudicators across the federal government, uh, in addition to 2,000 administrative law judges. Uh, by contrast, there are only right now approximately 440 immigration judges. Yet, despite its, its relative smallness in, in comparison to other systems, uh, the immigration court system has come under increasing scrutiny in the past decade, uh, commensurate with the overall increase in the salience of immigration, immigration law, immigration issues as national policy issues. Now, much of this scrutiny has occurred through a policy lens, uh, either in terms of substantive law, as immigration judge decisions, decisions by the Board of Immigration Appeals, and decisions by the Attorney General, who's the head of the agency, each make or influence immigration policy. Uh, but they've also come up through a uh, policy lens in terms of procedure, as policy determinations may lead to significant procedural changes in the courts, uh, such as the advent or the increased usage of administrative closure a few years ago. But rather than wading into the specific policy debates about the immigration courts, uh, today I want to focus more on them from a management and administrative perspective. Uh, being a manager of, of the courts and of that system, uh, it's something that I'm very familiar with. Uh, now, the system, the, the issue that I want to focus on specifically regarding the courts uh, is one that has garnered significant attention, uh, but little rigorous analysis that we've seen. Uh, and what attempted analysis that has occurred has often been both misinformed 
uh, and directed towards supporting particular policy preferences uh, rather than improving an understanding of the issue itself. Uh, and I'm speaking of the pending caseload that now faces the immigration courts, uh, what is colloquially called the backlog uh, and its growth over the past decade. Uh, the pending caseload has increased from roughly 186,000 cases in fiscal year 2008 to nearly 1 million cases as of today. Now, there are multiple causes of that increase, and the primary sources of the increase appear to have changed over time. Nevertheless, the need to address it is undisputed, and it presents a significant management challenge for administering immigration, and one that is not unique to the Department of Justice. Analytically, the size of the pending caseload is a function of new cases filed versus cases completed. The immigration courts hold responsibility for completing cases and thus exert a degree of influence over the progression of the caseload and the size of the caseload. Moreover, beyond a simple efficiency aspect, the completion of an immigration court case is of paramount importance because it brings resolution to a situation in which a human being and the government are both otherwise in limbo. For an alien with a meritorious claim to remain in the United States, a case completed with a grant of relief or protection removes a cloud of uncertainty from that person and potentially puts that individual on a path to eventually obtaining full rights as a United States citizen. Conversely, for an alien without a meritorious claim to remain in the United States, a completed case ensures that the individual is removed consistent with the federal government's interests in enforcing its laws and protecting its borders. Thus, declining case completions not only exacerbate the backlog, but delay justice for both the aliens and the government. A 2017 study by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, found that immigration court case completions declined by 31% between fiscal year 2006 and fiscal year 2015, and that completions per judge declined 5% per year over the same time period. In short, the immigration courts were not operating successfully at performing their core mission, which is to adjudicate cases both fairly and expeditiously. Correcting this deficiency, which has contributed to some extent to the increase in the backlog for several years, uh, required an all-hands sort of 360-degree both management and administrative approach to changing those courts. Now, because it is a court system, the first and most obvious way of addressing productivity is to increase the adjudicatory capacity by hiring more judges and more support staff. And through improvements to the hiring process, uh, EOIR, the Executive Office for Immigration Review, has been able to hire roughly 220 new immigration judges since January 2017, and it's able to bring on large new classes almost every quarter per year. It has also reduced the average hiring time from, for an immigration judge from over two years to approximately six months. Notwithstanding these improvements, hiring does take time, and the expansion of the adjudicatory core is dependent on space, avail space availability which often takes longer to procure than the hiring process. If any of you are familiar with acquisition regulations or acquisition law, uh, you know that it takes a lot longer to lease or to build a space than it does to hire an employee. So although expansion certainly helps with productivity, it only helps up to a point. EOIR also had to look at maximizing the use of its existing adjudicatory capacity to ensure that it was utilizing all of its available resources. To that end, EOIR implemented multiple initiatives to effectuate a policy of what it called no dark courtrooms. Dark courtroom means an unused courtroom, which represents an opportunity cost for the entire immigration system and a lost opportunity for justice for both the aliens 
and the government. At one time, EOIR had approximately 100 courtrooms in disuse every Friday of every week. That's 100 potential lost cases every day, or every Friday of every week. To carry out this No Dark Courtrooms initiative, EOIR recruited and hired retired immigration judges to fill in wherever a dark courtroom appeared. It equipped all courtrooms with video teleconferencing capability and expanded the use of VTC for hearings. It also established an all-VTC center in Texas and reopened a VTC center in Virginia that had been closed in 2014 after a decade of successful use. EOIR also reviewed its docketing practices and ensured that available gaps in scheduling were filled in as expeditiously as possible. Further, because the caseload is not evenly distributed among all the courts, it also made sure that courts with excess capacity could hear cases from courts that were overloaded. In addition to making operational improvements to hiring and adjudicatory processes, EOIR also looked at its institutional culture and infrastructure to assess what changes were necessary. Institutional culture change, especially in a federal bureaucracy, is difficult, uh, but there was an ag agency-wide understanding and appreciation that a culture of not prioritizing the completion of cases was simply not working. For the reasons I noted above, deciding cases is the quintessential function of an immigration court, and through training, improved communication, and the issuance of clear priorities, EOIR was able to effectively reset its culture so that, that importance um, that necessity of completing cases understood and respected by all parties involved, including the alien, the Department of Homeland Security, and the immigration judge. Now, regarding the institutional infrastructure, one key issue stood out above all others, and that's electronic filing. Uh, electronic case files are easier to use. They promote efficiency. They're also the norm in most court systems. Uh, those of you who are practicing attorneys may be surprised to find that EOIR has not had electronic filing. In fact, for a court system, an adjudicatory body of our size, we may be the last agency in the country that does not. Um, EOR had been studying it, and I use the word studying in quotation marks, for approximately 17 years. Um, overcoming 17 years of institutional inertia in approximately one year, um, EOR was able to successfully conduct a pilot program at five or six immigration courts last year in 2018, and we're scheduled to begin a nationwide rollout of it later this year. Finally, in addition to process improvements, infrastructure improvements, and changes to the culture and technology, it's critical for EOIR to do a self-evaluation and review its own policies to determine if any of them were inhibiting productivity and the efficient completion of cases consistent with due process. To that end, EOIR canceled a number of policies that were outdated and no longer in use, and updated its policies on subjects such as continuances, which the GAO had found was also or had identified as a source of reduced productivity and an increase in the backlog. All of these changes have moved forward aggressively over the past two and a half years, um, and they have been successful um, much more than our, our initial expectations. And this is where I get to the good part. In FY 2014, fiscal year 2014, EOIR completed roughly 142,000 cases. This past fiscal year, the one that just concluded at the end of September, fiscal year 2019, it completed over 275,000 cases. So in essence, it has doubled its case completions in approximately five years. Now, these successes have showed up not only at the aggregate level or at a macro level, but at a granular level at the immigration courts nationwide. Uh, despite a number of assertions from multiple, multiple corners, that it was impossible for an individual immigration judge to complete 700 cases in a year, 
Uh, many judges did just that, even without accounting for the shutdown that happened, the recency of their hiring, their supervisory status, or any other relevant factors. Moreover, nearly 40 courts nationwide had at least one judge who completed that number, which meant it wasn't limited to specific courts or specific regions of the country. Now, excluding new judges, uh, judges who were supervisors, judges on detail, judges who left, essentially judges who were not adjudicating for a full year, uh, the average immigration judge completed over 700 cases for EOIR in FY 2019, and that doesn't account for any time that was lost to the shutdown. Moreover, all of the immigration judge performance measures regarding timeliness and efficiency, except for trial date certainty, was at 90% or higher in the aggregate. Most importantly, perhaps, however, these increases in productivity did not come at the expense of due process. To the contrary, the number of complaints filed against immigration judges alleging judicial misconduct actually fell slightly for the second consecutive fiscal year. In short, the courts have begun operating impartially and efficiently, consistent with their mission. Now, if this were solely a case study about immigration court productivity, I think most people would view it as, as generally a success story. Working within the parameters of administrative law, labor and employment law, procurement law, as well as substantive immigration law, and through the implementation of practice and process changes, changes in culture, changes in infrastructure, the immigration courts reversed years of declining or stagnant productivity to complete the second highest number of cases in the history of the agency, and it would have been the first had there not been the shutdown. But that unfortunately brings me to the punchline of the story. Productivity is only one side of the equation. and As I mentioned, the caseload has continued to grow and is approaching 1 million. You may be wondering, obviously, with all these successes that I've mentioned, why the caseload still grows. Uh, and the answer to that question is simple and clear. New case filings have increased astronomically. In fiscal year 2008, there were roughly 225,000 new cases filed. This past fiscal year, again, the one that ended at the end of September, there were 443,000 new cases filed, which is by far the largest number in history. Now, as long as the new case filings continue to outpace case completions, the backlog will continue to grow. And I'll leave that to the policy experts um, and some of the panelists here today to debate the best way to address that. Um, but it is, it is the fact, it is the reality of immigration court life. Now, this good news, bad news dichotomy sort of epitomizes one of the fundamental challenges of administering immigration as a manager, especially in an administrative law setting. No immigration agency is an island, and there's no central coordinating body. Moreover, exogenous factors that cannot necessarily be controlled by an agency, such as increased attempts at illegal immigration that have, that have risen in recent years, present challenges for multiple agencies, as the actions of one agency in addressing these factors may cascade into downstream effects for other agencies. Uh, in this particular example, the, the impact of DHS cascades downstream uh, into us. So in short, there are limits to how much one agency or one body can administer and manage immigration. And an understanding of those limits and how or whether they may be changed, as well as the coordination with other agencies and stakeholders, is essential to making improvements to our current system. Now, when you're looking uh, at challenges in administering immigration analytically, Breaking down those challenges into discrete units is probably essential, otherwise the research may become unmanageable. Thus, whether you're looking at, for example, challenges facing a specific agency, um, addressing utili a, the utility of a specific court or a specific subject of a court, um, or looking at the role of federal courts in litigation, 
breaking down the issues is important to understand it, to help analyze it. But when you move on to the next step, and I'm addressing primarily the, the scholars and the researchers out there, when you move on to the next step of thinking about the specific takeaways from your particular projects, uh, the so-called what next question, it is absolutely critical to think about how that, how your particular issue fits into the larger picture and whether and to what extent that larger picture may limit uh, your ability to manage or administer what you're working on or whether it provides opportunities for further development. Using my own example of the immigration courts as an illustration, we are actively looking at additional ways we can improve our management of the courts even further within the constraints of the existing law, and we do expect to continue our record of success in the future. Now, at the outset, I said I wouldn't attempt to offer any sort of grand theory tying everything together, uh, and I'm not sure a unified field theory of, of immigration is even feasible. Uh, but I hope that you'll take away today both an appreciation for the scope of immigration and the macro-level challenges inherent in its administration. I also hope that you'll consider the impact of your work beyond your particular area or your particular project and how it can further not only our understanding of immigration, but more importantly, our understanding of how to manage it in the era in which we currently work. Thank you. And perhaps foolishly, I've agreed to take questions too. Mm -hmm. Listen to your statistics. This is the one I'm going to ask you about. What percentage of the people brought to these courts actually show up? Uh, I don't. If they do, and they're found to be removed, are they then processed in handcuffs, or are they told to go away and we'll find you later? To your first question, what percentage show up? Um, I don't have the number in front of me. It is on our website. Uh, it's been running for non-detained cases, um, roughly a 40% in absentia rate. So that means 60% show up. Does that mean they lose by not being uh, Under the law, if it may be, um, under the law, if you don't appear for your hearing and the department proves both notice and substantive removability, the immigration judge should issue an order of removal. Uh, to your second question, that's actually directed at DHS. We manage the court system. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security is responsible for effectuating any orders that, that are issued by the judges. What about instance if you did show up? Or are you told to go away and we'll uh, think about you later? If you show up, the judge will hear your case and issue a decision. You have a right to appeal and, and the case will take its course from there. Hi, that was excellent presentation. Uh, my name is Elaine Middleman. I do some criminal work. I really don't do immigration work, but I'm trying to ask a very simple question here. I had a case I was appointed on a criminal appeal, and the person was already deported or removed before I was appointed. So I never did find him. But I finally did get the records from the immigration court, and they said that his conviction was final, but they ended, I think they showed district court judgment. In other words, his conviction was not final. My point generally is that I, I think their courts are missing a step in terms of making a ruling on whether a conviction is final before the person can be deported. I'm not familiar with the specific facts of that case. And that issue you raise is actually one that's been argued and, and litigated. And I think different courts have come to different conclusions on it. So since I am speaking from the Department of Justice, I, I can't I can't really comment on it specifically. 
but but I, I do understand the issue. Yesterday, uh, you said there were reports that DHS and DOJ How um how would that program work differently than the current process? And was that instituted in part to help the backlog that you talked about? What you're speaking of is the review of negative credible fear findings. The process itself doesn't change. Um, it's established by statute. In fact, the statute is very clear. It's section 235 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, dictates that reviews of negative credible fear findings should be conducted to the maximum extent practicable within 24 hours, uh, and in no case less than seven days. Uh, that's been EOIR's standard since that statute was enacted, and we endeavor to get all negative credible fear reviews done within that time period. What makes this fast I think describing it as a fast-track program may have been a description that came from the media or for someone else. Uh, for us, it's no different than any other reviews of negative credible fear findings. That would be a question, I think, for DHS. Hi, uh, David Rubenstein. Thank you for the great comments and for sharing them with us today. You mentioned the, the need to satisfy efficiency and fairness, and then you cited some statistics on efficiency and fairness with reference to how many complaints there may have been about due process. And one of the things that I was wondering if there's statistics on or one of the things that even matters or that you're tracking is rightness. And so the agency might be going through the steps necessary to give procedural due process, but is there any metrics to measure how often the BIA, let's say, is remanding back to the IJ for mistakes, in fact, mistakes of law? And are there any statistics for, on remand from the courts, which we'll be talking about in a later panel today, back to the agency? And I'm wondering, until we have those statistics about getting it right, that we can really have a full picture of whether or not, you know, the, 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 the mission of efficiency and fairness are really being adequately met. I may not have unpacked it in my presentation, um, but I mentioned briefly uh, a number that does pertain to your question. Uh, one of the performance measures that we do have for immigration judges is a remand rate. And we expect the judge's remand rate to be 15% or less um, as part of their performance to determine whether they have a satisfactory performance. Now, obviously, we also look at the total number of appeals that particular judge had. You know, if a judge has only appealed twice, and they're remanded once, 50%, it's not really 50% just because of the numbers. We do have to take into account the, the overall aggregate number. Uh, but I mentioned in my presentation that all the statistics were 90% or higher in the aggregate except trial date certainty. So that meant that the aggregate national uh, remand rate was 10% or less for the judges. So that is something that we look at, at least at the immigration judge level. The Board of Immigration Appeals, those members don't have the same performance measures that immigration judges do. Uh, but we do monitor um, the, the remand rate from the federal courts. I don't think we have it as a percentage, and I don't have, I apologize, I don't have the number off the top of my head, uh, but I do believe we have it posted on our website, uh, the number of federal circuit court remands that have come back to the BIA, and it has gone down in the last couple of years. Thank you. Uh, my name's Mike Hagan. Oh. Um, and uh, thank you for your remarks. Uh, as a part-time practitioner in the immigration courts, I can't tell you how much I'm anxious for electronic filing. Um, <laughs> it will make life much easier. You and everyone else. Yes, I know. Um, 
so my, my question actually relates a bit to something you alluded to, the changes that have been made, especially uh, regarding administrative closure and to some extent continuances. Uh, and although they, they vary and some immig- different immigration judges had different practices, one of the main reasons that they were used is uh, the confusing nature of immigration adjudication where there can be one case going on in immigration court and also a pending application or two with USCIS. And I know you uh, may not have liberty to speak beyond what your your agency's mandated already to do, but I am curious if you have any thoughts that you can share on whether it would be useful for immigration courts to actually have broader jurisdiction over more immigration questions, because this is clearly in practice something that causes a great deal of confusion and frustration, I think, for everybody involved, that essentially you have one person one fundamental question of whether the person will be allowed to stay in the United States and two different agencies proceeding on different tracks with different timelines in adjudicating this one person's matter. Uh, this is an issue that, that comes up fairly frequently. Uh, and, we, and we've created a carve out at EOIR, what we call a status docket, um, to primarily track the cases where something else is pending. Um, I would agree with you that it's probably not a model of efficiency but I don't know that anyone has sort of looked into or come up with a proposal for how that would be done. I suspect it would require a statutory change, uh, given the authorities that were given to DHS with the Homeland Security Act. Um, so I, I don't know that's something that we've looked at closely. Um, I do know, as, as you know, the BIA does have appellate jurisdiction over some petitions uh, that are filed with USCIS at other agencies. So there is already some mechanism whereby EOIR has some adjudicatory authority over petitions from other places. Uh, But in terms of sort of a wholesale transfer, um, I don't know that anyone's looked at that, and I suspect it would require congressional action. One of the criticisms I've seen of immigration judges is that they're vulnerable to pressure of cases in general. Can you speak to what steps you're taking to ensure that? We get this a lot, and and that that assertion comes up frequently. Um, I assume most of the people in this audience are attorneys. And I assume most of you have practiced in front of judges, uh, regardless of whether they're administrative judges or federal judges, state judges, whatever. How many judges do you know are really subject to any sort of pressure? Most judges that we're familiar with and immigration judges, I don't think are any exception. When they're on the bench, they know what their role is as a judge. They put on the robe. They take that very seriously. They act very professionally. They will do what the law commands. Um, There is... We've had no allegations of anybody reaching down to specific judges, telling them you have to rule this way, you have to rule that way. Uh, One of our judges wrote an op-ed, I think for USA Today, a couple of years ago, where he mentioned that he'd decided over 10,000 cases in his career and no one had ever told him how to rule in any particular case. So I know it's a common assertion, I know it's a common trope, um, but on sort of a day-to-day basis, we don't have any evidence that it's happening. Moreover, even if it were, I, I don't know how susceptible judges would be. They're not weak-willed individuals. What institutional mechanisms are there? Immigration judges are like most federal employees. Um, they have uh, seniority rights. They have MSPB rights. Um, it's been reported frequently that they're at-will employees, and that's simply just not true. Um, we can't, I can't get into any sort of specifics about any particular actions that may or may not have been taken against judges, um, but they are similar to most federal employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.